My name is Keith Beavers and I just started baking for the first time. It's been wonderful. I've baked one cake. It went... Well... What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode two of Vine Pair's Wine 101 podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tasting director of Vine Pair. Vine Pair Keith on Insta. What is going on? And here we are, guys. This is the second part. I'm sorry. This is part two of American wine history. And wow, do things get crazy. Bear with me. It's going to be nuts. E&J Gallo Winery is excited to sponsor this episode of Vine Pairs Wine 101. Gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide range of favorites ranging from everyday to luxury and sparkling wines. I mean, Gallo also makes award-winning spirits, but you know, this is a wine podcast. So whether you're new to wine or an aficionado, Gallo welcomes you to wine. We look forward to serving you enjoyment in moments that matter. Cheers. Okay, wine lovers. Things are about, like I said, about to get nuts. This is going to be, wow, this is going to be crazy. I I really can't wait to tell you guys what happens next. And bear with me because it's going to be a bit of a roller coaster. But by the end of this thing, (laughs) it's going to be cool. So, okay, here we go. Remember the last episode we talked about what was going on basically, well, mostly in the eastern states the colonies and then the states and how it all kind of developed. And we talked about how there was so much heartbreak and it just like list upon list upon list of things that weren't working for people. And then towards the end of the episode, I was like, but wait a second, there's things happening over in the Rio Grande Valley. So what's up with that? Because what was happening in the 16th, 15th and 16th century, as I mentioned in the first episode, Europeans were getting on boats and coming over to the new world and trying to find places. The Spanish specifically We're doing a lot of this. And what we're about to encounter almost happened in isolation because of the lack of communication from the East Coast to the Western Coast states, if well, Southwest, West of what would be the U.S. Now, for Spain, this is how it worked. They occupied a chain of islands just off the coast of Morocco called the Canary Islands. And it was, well, it was first colonized by the nobles of Spain. Then it was, con- then the royals came, the royals brought monks, the monks bought, brought vines. And this is almost like these islands were sort of a launching pad to the new world because there was no, you know, there was no Panama Canal. You had to go, you know, around South America and they would all end up in Mexico, specifically Mexico City. And of course, the monks brought with them vine cuttings to plant on this new colonized chain of islands. And smack dab in the middle of Spain was a region called La Mancha. And this had a lot of, there's a lot of monasteries here. Um, actually, there, it's, it's so monastery <laughs> that there's actually like regions of, wine regions are named after the monasteries. There's one uh, wine region called Priorat. Priorat means priory. Priory means monastery. Monastery means monks. So it was a very heavy monastery place. And from that area, a vine by the name of, that makes that grows a grape by the name of Listan Prieto makes its way from La Mancha to the Canary Islands. Listan, the word, no one knows what it means. Prieto at the time meant dark. So it was a dark red grape from La Mancha 
makes its way f- with the monks to the Canary Islands and eventually becomes known as the Palomino Grape. One of these explorers, these captains of ships, was named Hernan Cortez. I'm sure you've recognized the name. And he heads down through, around, and makes his way to Mexico City. In 1522, he sends a letter to Spain asking for them to send him vine cuttings so he could establish himself in what these, what they were basically starting to call New Spain. Because in this new land, Spain would see you as a resident if you, of among other things, planted a vineyard and established yourself as a resident. Then you would actually get a land grant. So vine cuttings start making their way from Spain to this new world. And among them is the hardy, highly productive survival grape from La Mancha, Listan Prieto, now kind of known as Palomino. And from here, wine starts expanding south. Not north yet, but definitely south. It makes its way to Peru, it makes its way to Argentina, and then eventually makes its way to Chile. And I'm sure a lot of vines did a lot of traveling, but there's one vine that seems to keep popping up, doing well, and making wine. And it was once called Listan Prieto, It was also once called the Palomino grape, but as this grape starts traveling south to Peru, it's called Negra Corriente, or current black, so just the current black grape that's working for them. In Argentina, it's called Criolla Chica, which means the Creole girl, (laughs) and in Chile, they call it País, which just means country. Now, back up in Mexico City, this is a very interesting thing here for history, is that the wine that was being made in Mexico City was not for religious purposes. It was secular wine for these conquistadors to just drink. And obviously the wine situation was going well. The vines were growing, wine was being made, people were consuming it. So much so that the Iberian imports were drying up. People didn't want wine from Spain coming to the New World because by the time it got there, it was bad. It was better for them over in Mexico City to grow their own vines and make their own wine because it was working. The merchants got mad. They went and cried to the royalty. So the royalty put an edict out saying no more wine production, production, production in Mexico City by like whatever of the king. So wine production, it didn't really work. Wine production did slow down or kind of stop or stall in Mexico City. But by this time, Peru had wine. So now Mexico City was just importing wine from Peru. They didn't really import wine from Spain anymore. It was kind of becoming an isolated incident to the point where Peru at some point becomes the number one supplier of Mexico City. And speaking of Peru, while all this is going on, there is a sect of monks called the Jesuits that are making their way through Peru, working their way north, building missions, converting people, and all that stuff that the monks do, eventually making their way to Mexico City and building missions there. At some point in the 16th century, the Jesuit monks fall out of favor with the Spanish royalty and are banished from the New World. Like, literally, like, get your stuff, get out, come back home, we're putting you in jail, and we may kill you. I don't know what they did. But to come in and fill the vacuum of these empty monasteries, this empty monk presence are the Franciscan monks. They start heading their way to the New World. They start occupying the Jesuit missions. And this is one of our pop-off moments in our story, wine lovers. Enter Father Junipero Serra. This guy was chomping at the bit to get to the New World to do missionary work. 
he was a very intense guy. He flogged himself. Like he got like very intense, committed to his order and wanted to be a missionary so bad. He makes his way to Mexico city. He's very loyal to the church and he rises up pretty quickly in the missions of Mexico city. And at some point an order comes from Spain that he is to become the president of missions of the Californias and to head north and convert everyone to monotheism. And in 1769, Father Junipero Serra arrives in a little hamlet called San Diego and establishes his first mission called Mission San Diego de Alacala. He plants a vineyard, and it's thought that this moment here is the first time Vitus vinifera made it into California soil. He eventually continues north all the way to Monterey and then eventually to Sonoma, builds nine or ten different missions, and then he supplies each of those missions with vines from the cuttings of the San Diego mission. And these vines were not only for the monks for religious use, but also for settlers to come in and grab and kind of make a place for themselves. Now, the grape that was being used primarily in these vineyards was this grape that's called Pais or Palomino, at least on Prieto. But to the settlers and to the monks, because it was in a mission, it was called the Mission Grape. And going forward, that is the name of this grape, the Mission Grape. So as you can imagine, nine or ten missions, settlers using those vines, the Mission Grape becomes the number one planted vine across California until the late 1800s. By now you're asking, what about phylloxera, Keith? Oh, don't worry. We'll get to it. It's fun. But by the 1800s, the majority of the wine being made was in Southern California, what, what we know as Southern California. And here we have it. Spain rules Mexico. Mexico City is a hub. Word gets out to the rest of Europe, and they begin making their way to Mexico City to eventually work their way up into the north to Baja and beyond. So by the 19th century, what would be the United States actually did have wine being made successfully, but it was in a place called Alta California, and it was not happening over in the East Coast. While all this was happening over in the Southern California, Mexico area, just failure was happening over in the East. It was just one heartbreak after another, and there was no communication, but now there was, and things get crazy. Okay, wine lovers, things are about to start moving very fast. In 1821, a man by the name of William Wolfskill, yeah, W-O-L-F-S-K-I-L-L, you cannot make this stuff up, his name is William Wolfskill, and he makes his way to colonial New Mexico to a place called Santa Fe de Nueva Mexico, which is basically the town of Santa Fe in what is now the state of New Mexico. So this is the era of the trapper, the mountain man, the cowboy. And William Wolfskill is all of those, primarily a trapper. He spent the last 10 years living off the land in colonial New Mexico, which is basically a lot of Texas and all of Arizona. So it's a lot of land, but he was trapping and selling furs and making a bunch of money along the way. So he gets very wealthy and decides to basically head into town and make a life for himself. And just as he was arriving, that same year was the War of Mexican Independence from Spain. In 1826, two people do crazy things. 
a man from southwest France near the Bordeaux area who comes from a family of coopers, meaning a family that makes barrels for wine, decides to upend everything, leave France, and head to the New World. This guy's name was Jean-Louis Vigne, which basically translates to John Louis Vines. That's right. Again, can't make it up. Johnny Vines. I'm calling him Johnny Vines. Who wouldn't call him Johnny Vines? Johnny Vines leaves France and actually heads to Honolulu because he has some distillery experience and he wants to have a chance at rum. Also that year, a man by the name of George C. Yaunt, who lives in North Carolina, wants to be a trapper, wants to be a mountain man, has a family, and just leaves them and hits the Santa Fe Trail to go to where all the activity is. How you guys doing so far? Everybody okay? In 1828, our boy William Wolfskills in Mexico City established himself. And now that Mexico is independent from Spain, William Wolfskill becomes a naturalized citizen of Mexico, essentially an American Mexican. That next year in 1829 in Honolulu, things aren't going so well for Johnny Vines. He established himself, has a little house and has some sugar cane. He's doing this whole rum thing. He's actually working at a distillery. Everything's going really well. But there's this sort of religious figure in Honolulu, Honolulu that um, convinces the queen at the time that alcohol is bad. And the queen bans all alcohol from the island. So now Johnny Vines doesn't have a job. The distillery closes. All the cane gets burned and destroyed. So that next year, Johnny Vines gets on a boat in Oahu to set out and figure out his next move. That same year in Mexico City... William Wolfskill, who's already established, he actually joins a traveling posse by the famous trailblazer Jedediah Smith. And the goal is to head north from Mexico City to Baja and into what is now Southern California. Another member of that posse, George C. Yaunt. So as Yaunt and Wolfskill are arriving in Southern California, our guy Johnny Vines, he's on that ship, remember? He lands in Monterey, California. So... George Yaunt and William Wolfskill become buds, and they split off from the party, and they go to the coast to hunt sea otter. They make even more money, and in 1834, they feel like they want to leave. And William Wolfskill says, I have so much money, I'm going to go to this little town over here called Los Angeles and see what I can do. And George C. Yaunt says, you know what? I'm hearing about this place up north called Napa. I think I'm gonna go check it out. And the two friends split. Now, when Mexico took their land back from Spain, they called what is now California, Alta California. And in Alta California were all of these missions that were now defunct because the Spanish were gone. And these missions had a lot of land and a ton of vines. All the way up in Sonoma, there's a man by the name of Mariano Guadalupe Vallejo. This guy is a big deal, wine lovers, especially for Sonoma and Napa. He oversaw the secularization, the secularization, can't say the word, of the mission in Sonoma. If you've ever been to Sonoma and you see that town square right there. So this guy had a lot of money and a lot of land. And during this time, there was a lot of, this is a very sparse land. And there's not a lot of control, not a lot of regulation going on. So there's a lot of these landowners, and then there's a lot of people squatting, and then there's sort of anti-Mexican revolts going on. It's kind of a Wild West situation going on there. And we're going to get to that in a second. But 
What's important about the Vallejo, and he's very important, but in, in 1834, when Yaunt works his way up north, he ends up in Sonoma, and he actually becomes a carpenter for Vallejo. So in 1835, Vallejo takes over basically Sonoma Plaza. He plants a vineyard. And this is, this is the thing about Vallejo. He was Mexican, and he actually encouraged American immigrants and European immigrants to come into Alta California. He thought it was good for labor. He's like, we need people with skills. We need to start bringing people in. So he started employing people, and George Seant was part of that. They became very good friends. And in 1836, Vallejo gives George C. Yaunt a huge swath of land in what is the Napa Valley. And George C. Yaunt becomes the first settler in the Napa Valley. He calls this land Rancho Camus, Camus being a, the name of a, a, a tribe, an offshoot tribe from a larger tribe of indigenous people in the area. This was a big piece of land. And if you listen to the Napa episode, you have a sense of this. His ranch covered Yauntville, Oakville, and Rutherford combined. That's big, Yauntville. Get it? We'll come back to that. Now, by this point, our boy Johnny Vines is doing really well. What happened to Johnny Vines? Well, he leaves Monterey. He ends up going to Los Angeles, applies for citizenship there, buys 104 acres of land in downtown, what is now down, northern downtown Los Angeles, and plants a vineyard. He names his property El Aliso after this big alder tree that's on his, at the entrance of the property, and he begins making wine from the Mission Grape. Obviously, the Mission Grape is everywhere, wine lovers, but the thing is, Johnny Vines is French, right? He's from the Bordeaux region. He's not satisfied with this Mission Grape. So he reaches out to his connections in Bordeaux and he gets Sauvignon Blanc and Cab Franc imported to Los Angeles, makes this wine, and he's kind of known as the first guy to make quote-unquote quality wine in California. He's also the first, really the first, to age wine. In 1857, he actually advertised that his wines are 20 years old. Pretty cool. But by 1840, Johnny Vines is sending shipments of wine. He actually sends his first shipment of wine to Northern California. He's starting to move, man. This guy was crazy popular, and actually, because of what he was doing, he actually created sort of what's called French Town in what is now Chinatown in Los Angeles. It was a thriving French community. There was a, a lot of French people in Los Angeles at the time. I think it was like 70% of Europeans, Americans in Los Angeles at the time were French. Now, just south of Johnny Vines, remember our guy William Wolfskill? This guy had all this money. Well, what he does is he ends up setting up his own agricultural business as well. He starts to plant vines. Of course, he plants the mission grape, but he also plants oranges and a lot of and other citrus fruits. He actually starts the citrus industry of California. He invents the Valencia orange, but his goal was to make quantity while Johnny Vines was making quality. So you had just in the, just like the beginnings of California or just even American wine industry, we already have in Los Angeles, and they were rivals, but they were friendly rivals. We have the sort of large producer, and then we have the smaller producer. It's just kind of amazing how it just started there in Los Angeles, and it's kind of a, a theme 
throughout California. Now, back up in Northern California, a really rich rancher by the name of John Marsh is having a conflict with some squatters on his land, and, no, and, the, and the government of Mexico is not doing anything about it. He gets really mad and starts writing letters to the East saying, hey, California is amazing, the climate, the soil, you gotta come. And this letter campaign starts to work, and people start moving west. But also that year, one of the most interesting figures in all of wine in America is a man from Hungary named Agaston Harazathi. This guy will become one of the most prominent figures in American wine and in California wine. And in 1840, he leaves Hungary with his 18-year-old cousin to come to the United States to see what's going on. He lands in Wisconsin. He falls in love with it. He sees potential. This guy is a businessman. He starts making deals. Things are going great. He has plans. So he heads back to Hungary, grabs his family, comes back to Wisconsin, and never goes back to Hungary again. And around this time, our boy Johnny Vines in Los Angeles, he's making regular shipments of wine to Northern California. That next year, over in Napa, George Siant gets even more land from Vallejo over on Howell Mountain. And by 1846, everything's hitting kind of a fevered pitch. You have revolts happening in California. There's clashes with the Mexican government. There is the beginning, which becomes the beginning of the Mexican-American War. And while all that is happening, there is a rush of people in wagons from the east heading to the west. While that boiling point was happening, over in Wisconsin, Agaston Harazathi was having his way with everything he wanted. <laughs> he actually bought a bunch of land in a prairie bordering the Wisconsin River. It's now called Sauk City. He became a big figure in this area and actually started building a town. He built a brickyard. He built a sawmill. He built a general store. He built a hotel. He sold real estate. He operated a ferry that went across the Wisconsin River. And he actually had a steamboat on that river. He had a contract to supply corn to the soldiers in a nearby fort, Fort Winnebago. And he raised pigs. And he raised sheep. And he's the first person in the state of Wisconsin to, to, to plant a hop yard. Hops became very popular years later in Wisconsin. It became like the hop central of America. Agaston Harazathi, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, and did I mention he published a two-volume book called Travels in America for people back in Europe to understand what's going on here? This guy. And in 1847, as if he didn't have enough to do, he plants vines. But he doesn't just plant vines, wine lovers. He starts boring a 40-foot hole into a hill creating a cellar to receive the fruit of his vines, and he's the first in the United States to build a cellar into a hill or a mountain. That same year, a young aspiring journalist in Prussia by the name of Charles Krug makes his way to Philadelphia. In 1848, Agaston Harazathi experiences what every winemaker in this part of the country is experiencing, and that winter kills all of his vines. He says, enough is enough takes his family on the Santa Fe Trail and leaves Wisconsin forever. That same year, El Aliso, Johnny Vine's property, becomes the most extensive vineyard in California. The United States takes control of California from Mexico. And one week before California becomes a state, somebody finds gold in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And that changes everything. In 1848, the population of California was 8,000. In 1849, the population of California 
was 100,000. And you would think that our guy, Agaston Harazathi, who they call in Wisconsin the Count because he was just this larger-than-life figure and was always getting into businesses, you would think that the gold rush would be a beeline for this guy. But no. He takes the Santa Fe Trail, and he ends up in a little hamlet called San Diego. Or is it San Diego? Little Ron Burgundy there for you. And when he gets to San Diego, he wastes no time. Him and his sons plan to buy this defunct mission just outside of San Diego. And they ended up not doing that, but... He does plant vineyards on his property with cuttings from that mission they almost got. He's also said to have brought in some Bordeaux varieties, but the thing about Agaston Harazathi, as interesting as a character as he is, a lot of his history is mysterious. The guy kind of, he did a lot of stuff, but there's not a lot of information about him. And sometimes dates get confusing and it's a little bit, it's a little bit foggy, but that's Agaston, guys. This guy becomes the first sheriff. Sheriff of San Diego. And the same year he becomes sheriff, he's also elected city marshal. And in in addition to that, that same year, he's elected state assemblyman for San Diego County. And then he goes off to Sacramento to do the legislating, and he never returns to San Diego. Within two months after the legislature has convened in Sacramento... This dude goes and buys extensive land property just south of the city of San Francisco in a place called, well, near a mission called Mission Dolores, which is now the mission in the city of San Francisco. It proves impossible to do what he wants to do there. So he moves on. He's Agastan. He sells that property. He goes over to the peninsula. He sets up more, another vineyard in a place called San Mateo, which a bunch of people were buying or building summer homes in. He goes kind of in the foothills of the Santa Cruz Mountains, which kind of makes sense, and he tries to grow vines there. So he's up where the gold rush is happening. He has vineyards in San Mateo over on the peninsula. He actually starts becoming a gold refiner and assayer and enters into a partnership with two other Hungarians that he knows in the area. And in 1855, with all that going on, he somehow becomes the official smelter and refiner at the Branch Mint in San Francisco. And that was all between 1849 and 1855. Our man, Agason Harazathi, knows how to move. Now, in that time when he was doing all this stuff, he had that refinery. And this is a really interesting moment here. He hires a guy named Charles Krug. Remember that guy I mentioned earlier from Prussia? Well, he makes his way to Philadelphia. He goes back to Prussia, and then he comes back to the United States, ends up in San Francisco trying for a journalist thing, but ends up at a refinery hired by Agaston Harazathi and basically seals his fate because those two will eventually head north to Sonoma, Napa area. And speaking of Napa, back in 1852, while we're talking about Agaston Harazathi, a man, an Englishman by the name of John Pratchett arrives in Napa Valley plants vines, mostly the mission grape, and is thought to be the first to do so, the first to plant vines in Napa Valley. In the same year that John Pratchett was planting, a guy named Joseph Warren Osborne comes to California. He buys a bunch of land south of Rancho Camus, where George C. Yaunt is, and he calls it Oak Knoll, which is now an AVA. He plants vines and is thought to be the first person to plant Zinfandel into Napa soils. The gold rush basically ends in 1855, and not a lot of people made a lot of money, but a few people did make a lot of money, and they were not necessarily the people that found a bunch of gold. 
they were the people that supplied the things to all the people looking for gold. And a lot of that money ends up moving north into the Sonoma Napa area. And also wine is being made in Sonoma and Napa and that wine was being sent to San Francisco as well during the gold rush. So Agastan Harazathi, the guy with the fingers and all the pies, gets in trouble. He gets indicted for embezzlement in one of his refineries, and he has to he has to have like a trial. But this guy doesn't want to sit around and wait around for a trial. He heads north, and he ends up in a place called Sonoma with his boy, Charles Krug. Now, the trial goes on, and he's actually acquitted, but that's not until 1861. So he's just literally in Sonoma doing his thing, which is very important for the history of wine in America, while he's on trial. Awesome. In 1857, he buys land, starts boring holes into mountains and hills like he did in Wisconsin, and he opens up his own winery called Buena Vista. Charles Krug is helping him out, but remember John Pratchett? He has his first crush, and then he hires Charles Krug to help him out. He also ends up helping out George C. Yaunt for wine, and he buys his own land from Agasson Harazathi. But in 1860, he marries the daughter of a prominent landowner in this area and then is awarded through a dowry a bunch of land where he in turn opens his first winery, Charles Krug Winery, in the St. Helena District. The importance of Charles Krug and Agastan Harazathi are profound because of their contribution to winemaking in the area. Not only do tons of winemakers in Napa and Sonoma have hillside cellars because of Agastan Harazathi these days, but also he was very big on getting people to uh, plant vines on hillsides, and which you know you see all over Europe. He brought a lot of European techniques to California, but basically to the United States and to the American wine growing and uh, vine growing and winemaking culture. Charles Krug, of course, was the consulting winemaker of the area, but he had other little innovations that he would bring to the stage. Like he started using a cider press to press grapes, which became the norm at the time. But poor Agastan Harazathi, everything kind of comes to an end with this guy. It's a little bit sad, but at some point, he is directed by the California government to report on vines and grapes in California. And he ends up going to Europe and collecting a bunch of vines. Traveling all through Europe is a very, very, very expensive trip, bringing hundreds and hundreds of vines back to California, presented all of his findings and all of his reportings to the California government, And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, that's a lot. We don't want to deal with that anymore. And this is the 1860s. By 1862, our guy Johnny Vines passes away at the age of 82. Very happy life. Very accomplished. Our man, William Wolfskill, he dies in 1866. One of the wealthiest men in California. But for Agastan Harazathi, the 1860s was not a very good time. Because he had a winery. He also had an agricultural business, and he was the, on that board. He also spent a bunch of money going across Europe and finding information for the California government, which basically said, we don't want that anymore. Not only that, but his wines, which were award-winning wines at the time, started to get weak and thin. His vines started dying off. He couldn't figure out what was going on. Nothing was working. His wine started to not sell. Guys, it was phylloxera. Phylloxera is a native louse to the north-northeast of the United States. But by this time, it's making its way over the Rockies. It doesn't have a full-blown effect on the West until after, like, the 1880s. 
But Agastan Herazethi had had a bunch of Vitus vinifera in his area, and Phylloxera got a hold of it. He loses almost everything. He files for bankruptcy, but not letting anything get this guy down, he finds two new business associates with a new business opportunity somewhere in South America, heads on down to Nicaragua, and disappears. Forever. Was it sickness? Did he get eaten by an alligator? Did he try to wrestle an alligator and get eaten by an alligator? Did he acclimate to the people of the area and live a long life? In seclusion? We'll never know. But because of his work and Charles Krug and all these original characters, this area starts to become a burgeoning area. And here's a little note. In 1879, a winemaker by the name of Gustav Niebaum is the first to make a Bordeaux blend in Napa. That's important. So by the 1900s, the eastern part of the United States was not doing well with wine. The western part of the United States was killing it with wine, specifically in California, specifically in Napa and Sonoma. Wines were being sent to Canada, Germany, England, Mexico, Asia. We were sending wines everywhere, wine lovers. We had a burgeoning wine industry. And part of that is because, well, because we were killing it, (laughs) but also Europe was dealing with phylloxera at the time and we weren't in that, we weren't there yet. So we were doing so well. Everything was developing. Everything was going great. You could feel the energy in this area, especially when you're doing this research. You can just kind of feel it. And then in 1919, Prohibition hit and destroyed everything. Find Pear Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. J. Gallo Winery is excited to sponsor this episode of Vine Pair's Wine 101. Gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide range of favorites ranging from everyday to luxury and sparkling wine. I mean, Gallo also makes award-winning spirits, but you know, this is a wine podcast. So whether you're new to wine or an aficionado, Gallo welcomes you to wine. We look forward to serving you enjoyment in moments that matter. Cheers. Visit BarrelRoom.com today to find your next favorite where shipping is available.